0: Hi, Monica Lopez here. Before we get started, I'd like to ask you to consider supporting independent media and making contact by becoming a donor. We know we're not the only podcast you listen to, but we certainly do hope we're among the group that's worth giving to. And your donation is tax-deductible. So visit our website at radioproject.org. And now, here's the show.
1: Making contact. Making contact. Making, making. making contact.
0: For me, as a paraplegic, this wheelchair is an extension of my body. It's not just a mobility device. And I think a lot of people can't grasp the concept that when you grab a person's wheelchair, who uses a wheelchair all day, every day, you're grabbing their body.
2: What happens to a disabled body that does not produce at the rate of capitalism? It becomes ejected. It becomes labeled as deficient and inefficient against a system that is totally arbitrary and are absolutely external to the life of the body.
1: On today's episode, Disability, Our Culture, Ourselves, we'll take you on a bus ride in Seattle to experience a day in the life of a disabled passenger, and we'll hear from Sarah Acevedo, a disability studies scholar who explores culture and identity from within the disabled community.
2: When I claim or tell someone, oh, I'm autistic, and they're like, don't you mean you have autism? because like. You're human first. And so that makes me think what autistic people aren't human inherently.
1: That was Professor Acevedo. Now let's hear from disability rights activist Dorian Taylor and the particular challenges they face while accessing public transportation as a paraplegic. Here's contributor Mona Yeh with a report.
0: Thank you.
2: Hi, I'm Mona Yeh. That was Dorian Taylor getting on a bus with me. We rode from Dorian's home in Tequila to the south downtown neighborhood in Seattle. Dorian is
0: paraplegic and a wheelchair user due to a traumatic incident with police five years ago. Dorian moved to Seattle to seek better medical services and is now training for competitive sprint kayaking. Here's the dispatch. To get the training, I travel from Tequila to Bothell. It's about a two-hour trip one way. I don't drive. Access is also very unreliable, so I catch the bus for everything. I do most of my own grocery shopping, go to doctor's appointments. It's my main method of transportation besides my wheelchair. For me, as a paraplegic, this wheelchair is an extension of my body. It's not just a mobility device. It was literally specifically built for my paralysis level, for my sensation. And I think a lot of people can't grasp the concept that when you grab a person's wheelchair, who uses a wheelchair all day every day, you're grabbing their body. You're grabbing their physical person. I get a lot of that, like people will just grab me and drag me, and passengers. When I speak up about this, bus drivers tend to ignore it because they're just trying to help. And as a female assigned person that puts me in a tricky situation because I've had people that weren't just trying to help (laughs) and I don't get the same amount of protection as anybody else. Chances are they're going to defend the person that grabbed me. We're not used to seeing people with physical disabilities be independent. That reflects on the policies of Metro and it reflects on how somebody like myself who is pretty independent and can strap themselves in and all this, it's how we're treated on the bus. So People don't Act like I know what I'm doing. They act like they're going to know my mobility aid or how to strap it on better than me. I think a lot of people also don't realize how much these cost. This is $6,000. Just the cushion alone is $700. This seat back's $800. That alone should be a reason why a bus driver should just listen to you when you're talking about your mobility aid. An electric chair you're looking at thirty or $40,000. I need this, like this is my everything, you know? It's considered damage to private property. It's not considered bodily injury. But if you break my wheelchair, I feel like you injured my body because you've literally destroyed my mobility. You've destroyed the ability for me to just go to the bathroom without crawling. It's really hard to explain to bus drivers that not every single chair is the same, not every single wheelchair user is the same. Like, you don't have the same mobility as she does, so why would I have the same mobility and the same needs as the next person whose wheelchair is like you can buy a Walgreens? I've had bus drivers, um, you know, I'll let myself, unstrap myself, go up to the the You know, the edge of the, to, to, you know, wait for them to put the ramp down. I've had bus drivers grab me by the chest. Like I'm just gonna roll off the bus while they're in the middle of putting the ramp down, and I had a bus driver literally tell me, "Well, I'm just doing my job," and so, so your job is to grab people and treat them like children, you know. I've got I, I've get got left before to the point that when I used to catch the 120 downtown, um, houseless people would would stand in front of me to make sure I got on the bus because they got tired of seeing me left. I've had a bus driver pass me up at the bus drop because he wasn't looking down, and then. Stop! But tell me, I couldn't get on because he didn't want to let the ramp down in the grass. Um, you know, and this is the same bus driver that refused to tell a blind person where their stop was because they didn't have a white cane. You know, um, and and it's such an it's such an issue. Um, when I started working with the Transit Riders Union and reading the policies, well, there's that's the that the problem is in the policies. When the first the first the, first of all, they um, they basically tell somebody tell the bus drivers you know, you need to to make sure this person is safe but there's never anything about consent there's never anything about the person might know their safety better than the next person Um, when I lived in Portland um, and when I was in New York City you actually have the option of whether or not you can strap yourself in because in reality it's actually really dangerous for me, for my chair to be strapped in Um, because if the bus gets in a wreck I'm just going to fly out of my chair. If I was just locked with my wheel locks, I'd be fine. Like, that's how I rode in New York. That's how I rode in Portland. But here, it's actually really unsafe, and it's causing all of this damage to my wheelchair on top of it, damage to the alignment, replacing screws and bolts and things like that. Your only other option, <laughs> if uh, you don't want to fly out of your chair, is to be restrained. That's where you've got straps, so I couldn't even, like, grab what I needed to grab to take care of myself. So that's not an option either. The main problem I feel with the policy is um, they glance over it and there's no actual training on how to interact with people with physical disabilities. And if you see the way people with physical disabilities are treated in our society in general, we're infantilized in a lot of ways. So the problem that We get with teaching it as an afterthought and there being absolutely no consent in the policy and the policy itself being really patronizing. We have these different interpretations. So you have a bus driver that will let you on first, let you strap yourself in. You have bus drivers that lie to me and tell me that the policy and how you strap yourself in is completely different, like, oh, you have to strap yourself this way and that way yesterday i would get on the bus he strapped my tire both here and here on the hand rims first of all this is quick release so that's like the most dangerous place to lock up your chair so i told him i said oh next time could you not strap that here because just so you know that's a really unsafe place to strap wheelchairs especially everyday wheelchairs and i showed him this and um Then he started giving me hassle, and then I noticed that my wheels had been a little wobbly. So I was, like, pushing off the bus, and I was like, look, I'm the one that ends up paying for the damage, and these wheels cost $700. Then he tells me, you just tell me how to strap it up. And I was like, you know, actually, next time I ride your bus, I'll strap myself on, save the hassles. And he told me straight up, the next time you get on my bus, I'm not letting you on. And that's actually a pretty mild incident. But what had me call is I went to push up the hill and my tires are wobbly because they were pulled by the here. These are $700 rims. I cannot afford new wheels. Because of how I end up paralyzed, I've got pretty bad PTSD and people grabbing me you know without my permission it sets that off so I'm not in a good mood when I ride the bus and I have to prepare myself mentally to be able to catch the bus and I have all my things on my person like super close I make sure that there's nothing that would even make anybody want to just reach out and grab me like I try to make sure like everything's just in order so no one will touch me. Actually, do you mind putting him right here? Yeah, thank you. That's that's where my chair folds down, so that's a hinge. Yeah, yeah. I got red tape on the one side and ran out on the other. (laughs) Thank you. Uh Uh-huh. No, that was see, that was golden. We were fortunate enough to have a hassle-free experience on this bus ride.
2: However, Dorian's reality is that every day and every ride is unpredictable. Before leaving the house, Dorian has to mentally prepare for the ride. Amidst constant healthcare trips, the long commutes from Tequila to Bothell for kayaking offer critical value to Dorian's
0: life. I just needed something. I was going to snap. I was going to lose it. That's how I got involved in sports. And that's why I like kayaking so much, because it's the only place I can be where I don't think about all of that.
1: That was a ride along with Dorian Taylor. Dorian is currently working on communicating with Metro Services to find ways they can better serve individuals with disabilities. Dorian is carrying forward the efforts of the disability rights movement that began in the 1960s and continues today. The main slogan of that movement is, nothing about us without us meaning. No policy should be decided without the full and direct participation of those affected by that policy. The story of Dorian Taylor was produced by Yuko Kadama and Mona Yad in partnership with KBCS and Finding America, a national initiative produced by AIR, the Association of Independent and Radio Incorporated. Financial support was provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the Wincote Foundation, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, and the National Endowment for the Arts. You're listening to Disability, Our Culture, Ourselves, on Making Contact. Up next, we'll hear disability studies scholar Sarah Acevedo break down the powerful ways that common language and terminology can shape our perceptions of disability and why even today we are seeing further exclusion of disabled people.
2: Everything disability is grassroots. Just think about that. Like the history of disability rights in the first place is grassroots. Like people climbing the Capitol steps, throwing themselves out of their wheelchairs, throwing their crutches, climbing those steps, invading, like sort of occupying, right? Those were people, everyday disabled people who were being intently marginalized from various, from every aspect of everyday life and sort of like how disability studies kind of kind of was born out of those grassroots struggles and became institutionalized as, as it so happens that grassroots knowledge becomes institutionalized and co-opted and sort of reinvented or reincorporated into this wheel of reproduction, not only in terms of like reproducing um, exchangeable goods, we understand education as an exchangeable good, right? Which is a heartache. But also in terms of like this absorption of knowledge, knowledge in plural, turning it into this top-down approach to, oh, this is like the seriousness of the fact because we have put it in an academic book, right? And I am not whatsoever excusing myself from that because I am very much a part of it. I reproduce disability as anybody else who studies disability as a disabled person. And let me tell you, as a disabled person, I prefer to be studied (laughs) by, obviously I wanna be, I wanna study alongside somebody, Um, I, I rather that disabled issues, uh, disability issues, are taken up by disabled academics. Let me tell you the truth. And as much as I wish, for instance, that I could go to therapy and my therapist was autistic, you know, sort of like entering. And so, disability studies is kind of in this like sort of like um, in um, sort of strategic infiltration space of like let's legitimize our. Grassroots struggles and like sort of institutionalize them so that they are recognized within this sort of like matrix of dominant knowledge and, and, and sort of like ways of producing knowledge that are considered legitimate because they have a seal, because um, they're accredited, um, right? And, and so, doing there is a process of separation of disability studies from disability grassroots struggles. Like, there's no doubt that that occurs. It occurs with anthropology. (laughs) It occurs with sociology, right? Um, And with many other disciplines. So, and I'm telling you all this because I wanna talk about a model of understanding disability, the disability experience that was emerged from the work of um, disabled um, grassroots activists in Britain in the 1970s, and that they were working together, so disabled activists who were living in the community with disabled people who were still institutionalized and um, being brutalized and dehumanized within institutions of care for the disabled. So working in collaboration, they started thinking about the ways in which society disabled different bodies. Right, So it is an active, there's an active process that happens, and that process is called the process of disablement, right? So those like, given fancy terms were brought into academia by disabled British sociologists drawing from these experiences of, of, of grassroots struggles and, 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 and brought it to bear onto this model that had prevailed the history of any study of disability, not disability studies. That's different. Any study of disability, about disability, on disability, without disabled people. Um, and so, and that's it's 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 known in disability studies as the biomedical or individual model of disability, which understands disabled bodies as inherently, individually deficient. So it is a problem. It's it's it's, a pro- it's it's an inherent problem of the body. It has nothing to do with the societal circumstances, ideologies, practices, attitudes, uh, institutional approaches to different embodiment, right? No, the disability is just a natural, organic occurrence, and it's a deficit. Needs to be cured, needs to be hidden, needs to be manicured, needs to be prostheticized, needs to be handled, needs to be observed in confinement, Right? So, this, is be- this, this has been the tradition, right? The long Western tradition of understanding and managing and administering the disabled body through a biomedical perspective. That, unfortunately, is the perspective that continues to prevail today after 40, 50 years of struggles by disabled people grassroots academics in collaboration, artists, performers, poets, you name it, there is still this understanding of disability from this deficit perspective. So these academics like this British sociologist were trying to be like, look, these people on the ground, they talked about a social perspective of disability which locates the problem outside the body. It is not different embodiment. It is not the different body, different, that also in quotation marks, that's inherently problematic, that's inherently burdensome, or that's inherently abnormal, right? It is actually the social structures, practices, policies, institutions, interpersonal relationships that produce Disability into a category of deficiency and therefore a category of social oppression in every aspect of life, right? So in doing so, this battle sort of began, right? It was like disabled intellectuals fighting against the rest of the world in terms of like this academic traditions and like schools of thought that had been like totally established in disabled academics and intellectuals, not even disability studies yet, but just like within sociology. We're like, look at us, we're disabled, we're talking to you. And the disciplines are like, you can't possibly be an academic, you can't possibly be an intellectual because you're disabled. So I, we don't know what you're talking about, right? So it's this power power uh, relationship and this imbalance in, in between both two camps, so to speak, Um And so it happens that the social model has informed so many of our contemporary struggles. It continues to do so because it brings the idea of disability to bear on the material reality, concrete reality of the disabled body or of disabled bodies in a way that we cease to exist within this platonic realm of ideas um, and narratives and metaphor. Because disability is a very useful metaphor, let me tell you. For writers, oh, my God. It's like the primer. like, let's go to disability and use all this imagery about collapsing societies through the image of the disabled body, right? In a way as to detach it completely from the realm of material experience. And in doing so, from our lives, from the very experience of disability, from living disability. So living disability is embodying disability, which we do, which disabled people do. We embody that thing. We celebrate that thing. We struggle with that thing. But in insisting on an erasure of disability and disabled people from producing everyday life and from producing the world that's why we continue to circulate as metaphors. As charity cases are pitiful. That is not how we understand ourselves. That is not how we see ourselves. That is not how we represent ourselves. Disability culture, huge depth, vibrancy, richness, multi-layeredness of experience and deliciousness and just like multifaceted ways of looking at our bodies in a three dimensional perspective, as opposed to this flat allegories. One of these examples in the Bay, like be proud since invalid and Plative as part of since invalid, it is this performance troupe of disabled artists of color, Centering queer and non and gender non-conforming experiences. And bringing sexuality and sensuality in your face. Because the medicalized experience or representation of disability is the perpetual infant body. The non-sexual body, right? That is the mainstream that is com- completely dissonant with the way we live our lives and experience our bodies as pleasurable. We experience our bodies as pleasurable. We experience experience our bodies as oppressed. We experience our bodies as interdependent. We experience our, our bodies as this huge amalgamation of greatness, of possibility, of hope, outside of this binary construction of the deficit and the perfect body. What is the perfect body? What is the able body? Doesn't the able body need the disabled body in order to exist? Doesn't it need to be constructed again, like in tandem? Like how else do you define an able body? Everything that a disabled body isn't is the able body. So we still, we still need it. Like the able body needs us disabled bodies to reproduce itself in this hegemonic hierarchical way. So this division, like, think about the division between normality, quote-unquote, and abnormality, which are both historical. They're constructs. Like, abnormality and normality don't just exist in a vacuum of, like, organicity, or that's just the way it is. Things are the way they are. Their the white supremacy is just a natural occurrence of the hierarchical you know, like it's—it isn't. It is a product of social relations that exists within very specific value systems and ideologies. So, what I wanted to, wanted to do today most was invite you to like really think beyond the binary, to just really dig deeper and look at the contradictions that exist, like beyond, within, and the outside of those binaries that are so limiting and are so oppressive. So um, another thing that I see so often with my students and just people in general that's been like a really rich terrain of addressing this from the perspective not of a professor who teaches stuff about disability No, as a disabled professor who teaches about disability studies, is this an engagement with ableist language, everyday ableist language. So, so, so yes, metaphorical iterations, but in a more sort of like everyday sort of casual way. Oh, the weather is so OCD. Um, That is an insane film people don't usually think too deeply about the histories that exist behind the usage of these labels and these words. They have a history. Just as much as the construction of normality and abnormality has a history, these words that we use so casually in such arbitrary ways today, that's crazy, OCD, I was blinded by it, I was blind to it, it was a blind spot. You know, it's a crotch. The economy's crippled, which is not the same as reclaiming crip culture, let me tell you. That's a very different iteration right there. Is there is a history. And the history is a history of brutalization. The brutalization of disabled bodies in the creation of nation states. And the separation of bodies and stratification of bodies, again, in terms of who belongs and who doesn't belong. I mean, we can't give citizenship to everybody. We got to create citizenship in a dialectic with non-citizenship because then how can citizenship exist on its own? We got to create nationals and immigrants. I mean, otherwise what is the one doesn't exist without the other in this very dialectical oppressive tension which is also attention that produces resistance, the deployment of ableist language. To create affect among audiences at the expense of disabled people, you know? So yes, the histories behind these deployments are really torturous, they are real. They are part of a history that's been mostly erased from dominant understandings of the body. And those are the histories of the asylum in conjunction with the birth of psychiatry in the 19th century, scientific racism, and the production, the systematic production of these labels that would then determine humanity and non-humanity, humanity and subhumanity.
1: You've been listening to Disability, Our Culture, Ourselves, on Making Contact. Special thanks to CIIS, the California Institute for Integral Studies, and the CIIS Public Programs Podcast for use of the Sarah Acevedo talk. To learn more about CIIS Public Programs Podcast, log on to www.ciispodcast.com. For the rest of the Making Contact team, I'm Anita Johnson. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.